Hello, everybody, and welcome. My name is Alice Major, and I would like to, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to welcome you to this meeting, uh, conversation, reading with Sharon Butala and her new book, which I have to say, Sharon, I love. Oh, thank um, you. So, but before we get started on, on that, I want to do a couple of things for introduction. First, I do want to offer a land acknowledgement. Um, I am personally always awed by the thought that I live and the Writers Guild office is located on territory, the Treaty 6 territory where people have been composing poems and stories and, and hymns and uh, prayers for 9,000 years and longer. And I'm eternally grateful to be here. And tonight's uh, event is sponsored by Read Alberta, which is sponsored, uh, which is spearheaded by the Book Publishers Association of Alberta. Now, Read Alberta is a hub where Alberta's readers and authors and publishers and booksellers and libraries can connect and support and learn more about each other. They feature work by Alberta publishers and Alberta authors um, and illustrators in celebration of the distinct diverse voices coming out of our own province amidst a shared backdrop of prairie fields, windswept badlands, boreal forest, rolling foothills and majestic mountains. And I do want to throw in and the occasional city street as well. Learn more about what they're doing for us all at readalberta.ca. Now, uh, I just want to make a note at the beginning that we will be um, having questions if you'd like to ask any at the end. So please type any that occur to you into the chat box as we go along. I'll remind you about that later again. And now my great pleasure to introduce Sharon Butala. So Sharon has been writing now for over 40 years and published 20 books. Her 21st, which comes out next week on September the 13th, is an essay collection, This Strange Visible Air, Essays on Aging and the Writing Life. It's coming out from Freehand Books. She has been on the bestseller lists more than once, has won a lot of prizes, including the Marian Engel Award for Women Writers in Mid-Career, the Cheryl and Henry Kloppenberg Award for Literary Excellence, the City of Calgary W.O. Mitchell Prize, and she was recently shortlisted for the Writers' Trust Fiction Prize. Although, as she says, she hasn't won the biggies so far. She's only 80, so there's still lots of time. She is an officer of the Order of Canada, an inductee into the Saskatchewan Order of Merit. She has three honorary doctorates. And even though it's ridiculous, she still keeps writing. I am going to ask Sharon to start with reading some from this new book. Um, and I'll take it away, Sharon. Thank you, Alison. Actually, I turned 81 a week ago. So it never goes the other way. You always get older, you never get younger. 
So I'm going to read from my essay, um, Cold Ankles. It's really hard to find a chunk of an essay that is entertaining all the way through. It's not like a story or something. So I decided to stick, instead of doing little bits from several different uh, essays, to go with one essay, begin at the beginning, and stop when 12 minutes are up, roughly. Cold Ankles. When I got up one morning a couple of weeks ago and wandered from my bedroom into the main area of my condo, kitchen, living room, dining room, to make coffee, I smelled gas. Odd, because my home runs on electricity, although I do have a gas fireplace, but I could see at the other end of the room that the fireplace's switch was in the off position, and when I walked closer, I could see that its pilot light was burning cheerily away, and I could not smell gas coming from it. Puzzled, but hardly concerned, I went from my still faintly gas-smelling kitchen area back into my bedroom, where I couldn't detect any unnatural scent, that back, then back into the main room where I found that the gas odor I'd smelled only minutes before had vanished. I thought I must have imagined it, as I would later say to the gas company man who stared at me as if I had a lunatic, I'm 78 years old, I don't hear very well, my eyesight is going, flavors don't taste like they used to, why shouldn't my sense of smell be faulty too? I don't remember much about my first 65 or so years beyond the usual markers, graduations, marriages, childbirths, deaths, and moves from here to there. I could remember, but two or three years ago after I'd finished my life survey, my life survey that old people seem to need to do, I decided even against thinking, I, I get, excuse me, I have to change glasses here. I'm kind of half memorizing this, half reciting and half, uh, well, I just can't see it, so I invented. Um, I could remember, but two or three years ago, after I had finished my life survey that old people seem to need to do, I decided against even thinking about my past, except inadvertently when I would stop myself at once. I had begun to see the incidents, the conversations, the emotions of the long flow of my life as in themselves without meaning and had begun to suspect that the real meaning of my life was something else entirely, although what that was, I didn't know. But I had also kept journals from when I was about 40 until about 73. Every day I had written them in them what I thought and felt about people in my life or ideas I was musing on or happenings I had felt I had played a part in, as well as recording some of my dreams, those that were more vivid and seemingly significant than others. When I finally felt I'd finished with my inadvertent yet somehow inevitable mental life review, I found myself curious about the journals and went back to look through them. I think that for most of the years I wrote in them, I must have held at the back of my mind the notion that I was writing important things about who I was that one day would show me as insightful, even brilliant, a person to be reckoned with. Now, I suppose, not surprisingly, I found their very continued existence revealed only my narcissism and that their contents were repetitious as well as banal and too often simply trivial. 
Worse, they revealed the size of my secret ambition, too much about my shame at my failures, humiliations, and mistakes, as well as a lot of other things that I never wanted anybody ever anywhere to know about. The journal so embarrassed me that I decided to burn them all while I still could, the elderly person on her own being all too well aware that at any moment the great catastrophe can strike. But my gas fireplace, although it does give off heat, is mostly ornamental and is sealed with a thick sheet of heat-tempered glass. Besides, over the 10 days since that morning I first smelled the gas, I had smelled it, though faintly, on several more occasions. Each time the odor vanished almost as fast as I noticed it, and the pilot light was still burning steadily, but I was nonetheless nervous about turning it on. A friend with an old-fashioned wood-burning fireplace said, I should, said that I should use it to burn the journals, that she and her husband would be out in the afternoon for the next couple of days, and thus that I could have a little ceremony before or during the burning. I smiled and thanked her, while privately thinking that would be the day I'd be so sentimental or so hopeful, or could bring myself to believe the journals were of any importance at all in the larger scheme of things. I just wanted to get rid of them before I kicked the bucket and my son read them, or worse, I thought of Sylvia Plath and her published journals, a fate too horrible to contemplate. Not that I kept reminding myself anybody would want to publish mine. I wanted to get the job done as fast as possible, but I was, of course, also concerned about not burning down my friend's house. I found what we used to call when I was an art student um, an exacto knife, I've no idea what they're called now, to use on the journals because otherwise they would have taken far too long to burn. So I sliced off the cardboard covers at the bindings and tossed them one by one behind me as I knelt in front of the fireplace. I was immensely pleased with myself, easy peasy, I was thinking, having expected burning the journals to be ever so much harder, maybe even impossible. As I began to tear the closely written pages from their bindings and throw them into the fire, I stopped to read some of the dreams I'd logged as the only subject in the journals that didn't now fill me with annoyance, boredom, or even sometimes disgust. Over my adult life, I have had a few dreams that turned out to be not merely garbled reality, nor clever statements about the condition of my psyche then, but that in time turned out to be prescient. I don't think I'm special in this. I think everybody has such dreams. But since the arrival of our overruling belief in the God science cannot allow ourselves to notice them, or if we do notice them, we dismiss them out of hand. If any of us wonders about such dreams at all, we wonder privately. In my burning that first afternoon, I came across a dream I had about five years earlier about a man I had known for 40 years and with whom after the breakdown of our first marriages and then after our second spouses both died, his first, then mine, I had had brief liaisons, some uh, both times going nowhere, although we always remained close friends. In the dream, he was trying to persuade a woman I didn't know to go to bed with him and was being rebuffed. He was wearing only trousers, and most startling was that his skin was paper white. This because, the dream said, he had cancer. 
In real life, he was a strong, healthy man in his late 60s, his skin darkened by his vigorous outdoor life. Women, as far as I knew, lit up when they saw him. They didn't refuse him. But because it had been so vivid, I had written down the dream. See what I mean about trivia? Even though it made almost no sense to me. When I woke from it, though, I remembered that some years earlier, one morning, as I was about to mount the post office steps, I had passed a middle-aged woman. I knew only slightly coming down them. Her face had been the same unnatural paper white as my friend's body was in my dream. I remembered my involuntary chill, shock even, when I saw her strange too white face and how I brushed off what I'd seen, deciding that her extreme pallor must be due to sickness, although I didn't know any details about her life. But a few days later, she and four of her relatives were killed in a horrific car crash as they drove idiotically through a particularly bad blizzard. Slowly, over the intervening years, no, I must have known it at once, but wouldn't admit it as far too strange. I had come to admit the woman's too white face as notice of her impending death that somehow I had seen. So, of course, I immediately recognized that the dream about my dear old friend must be saying the same thing about him. I simply refused to believe it, though. It seemed ridiculous, and although I recorded the dream, I forgot about it um, until I noticed it as I tossed journal pages into the fire. For the first time, I saw that the dream had come roughly three years before his diagnosis and four before his death from cancer. Maybe even at the time, cancer had started brewing in his body long before there were symptoms or it was detectable by ordinary means. Personally, in my old age, I have come to think that most knowledge is available to us, but we all determinedly keep the channels blocked. We do not want to know. How would we live if we knew? Kneeling in front of the fireplace, surrounded by collapsed journal covers and piles of worthless praise pages crammed with writing recording years of my life, I thought of how my old friend and I had loved each other since not long after our first meeting when we were both married to other people how we loved each other on through our second marriages, both our spouses eventually dying, and then into our widower and widowhood when we were free to be together. And yet, although for a while we turned to each other in our bereavement, we did not become a couple as most people would have predicted, me included. I have a lot of ideas about why that didn't happen, but perhaps he saw, as I eventually began to, that our lives were now too different. Our lover, love was both deeper and no longer entirely romantic in nature, that it was too late for us, if indeed the right time would ever present itself. Hadn't history shown, I began to think, that there would be no right time? How very odd that seems to me now. And I wonder if Shakespeare knew something more about star-crossed lovers as he seems to have done about so many human things than we are able to discern from his play. Instead, after a while, he began to date younger women. 
I couldn't blame him, even felt tender toward him, knowing that he was no longer alone, solitude slowly killing his warmth and generosity. And I felt mature enough to deal with his turning away from me, or perhaps I thought he would eventually come back. At his funeral, though, I found out that he had been in a relationship with a much younger woman, that she had been living in his house with him. I had no idea for how long. I didn't even know her name. And yet, when he talked, he would refer to the man I was seeing as that guy in a disgruntled way that always made me secretly smile. He had been dead about 18 months when I began occasionally to smell gas in my condo. And I think I'll stop there. The story goes on and all these themes are interwoven uh, and um, come to a conclusion of sorts near the end. Thank you so much, Sharon. And I'm, I'm delighted that that's the essay that you chose to read for us because it is one of my favorites in the book. I, I wanna talk to you a little later uh, about the structure, but you know, the 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 first thing I want, wanted to ask you tonight was, did you ever regret burning the journals? Because as soon as I read that, I had this, this mental image of the two or three feet of black back journals on my shelf and thinking, could I, should I? <laughs> have, I have I reached the point that? <laughs> I'm betting your journals are interesting than mine. Mine had for many years a lot about cows and horses and trailing cattle and things like that in them. Uh, but some other things that what I did was I only really cared about the dreams. Um, I um, The only time I've ever regretted having burned them was when I wanted to know the date that something happened and I don't have any other record. So that's kind of too bad. But as for no, they weren't interesting enough. They weren't, uh, I wasn't quite as brilliant as I thought I was, damn it. <laughs> That's one of the charming things about the book um, that really resonated a lot with me is that you talk about the, um, the trajectory almost of coming to terms with starting out thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to shape their tree. I am going to be a great <laughs> writer mm. and then sort of coming to terms with it. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I often, uh, I think as old people always do, well, if I hadn't turned out that job offer in 1924, <laughs> you know, uh, how my life would have been entirely different, that kind of thing. Um, but mostly, I don't think that it makes a lot of difference when we make those critical choices or choices we think are critical, and then years mm -hmm. later we think that was the wrong choice, or even we just wonder, what if I had picked the other thing? We would have kept on living, we would have kept on doing things, we would have been ourselves, and whatever things we might have had a more comfortable life physically comfortable but uh you know many many years ago i taught um high school english at a school in langley bc i was really young my son who's now 57 was about a year old mm -hmm. and uh 
um, we then packed up and left British Columbia for Nova Scotia, went to Halifax. And I was in Saskatoon most of that summer and I had been applying for jobs in the Vancouver area. And one was as an art teacher in West Vancouver in a high school. And months later, don't know how this happened that I didn't get my mail. Months later, I found my mail and there was an offer from that West Vancouver school district. Well, I kind of think if I had gotten that, we wouldn't have gone to Halifax and I would have stuck with art instead of yeah. letting it taken from, be taken from me bit by bit, but giving it up, but letting circumstances take it away from me. My ambition, for one thing, this was long before I even thought about writing, of course. Well, that's one of the things that fascinated me. I hadn't realized, actually, that, that you had this, um, the, that you hadn't started writing until quite as late as you, yeah. you did. You mentioned in the, in the essays. Um, that you were in your late 30s when you started writing and mm. 44 when your first book came out. But you, yeah. you came out of the, 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 the shoot, so to speak, very quickly. <laughs> I, well, I relate to this because I was also yeah. a, late, a late starter in terms of writing. Oh, I didn't know that. You know. Oh. So you Yeah, know my, goes, my huh? first book would have been published around the same time. So yeah, um, uh, but I guess what I'm... Now, here's me, I've forgotten what the question I was going to ask you is. Yeah, the, this, this sense of um, might have beens and would your life have been very more, much more satisfying if you had won the biggies? Oh, that's a good question. I, I think uh, I wouldn't have been quite so consumed with envy <laughs> a lot of times <laughs> or going around kicking things because I didn't think it was fair that once again, I didn't win the Governor General's Award <laughs> three times I've been shortlisted. Surely there ought to be a prize for that, <laughs> you know, for being shortlisted three times. Um, but uh, if I had, yeah, I'm quite sure my life would have been considerably different because we all know that uh, the winners are in great demand for a year or two years or sometimes forever. That's just the beginning of a, an upward climb. And th that means uh, traveling all over the, at least the English speaking world for most of us in those days, that's who most of us were. And uh meeting all kinds of really interesting people and having amazing experiences that uh, I certainly didn't have um, sitting at home on a on a cattle ranch and a hay farm, you know. Um, and I would have gained in confidence a lot. I don't know that I would have been a better writer, though. But then after you get to a certain point, it doesn't matter anymore. Run that one by me again. I said I would have been, I, I don't think I would have been a better writer than I was sitting at home writing day no. after day on my no. own. No, uh, but I still oh. have every day so much to learn. It just, oh, it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> Life's not long enough. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a, even days are not long enough anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the, uh, but this, this sense of looking at the shape of your life at this time mm -hmm. in this book is, is different from how you might have looked at the shape of your life 
when you were a younger writer 20 years ago, say, you, you had some very prominent successes and, you know, the perfection of the morning kind of just blew us all out of the water um, at that point. Uh, I launched it in Edmonton, by the way. I had forgotten that, Sharon. Yeah, yes. 27 years ago. Oh, my gosh. I left for Italy the next day. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And when I phoned home from northern Italy, Peter said, Phil Spruce called. Your book's on the bestseller list, the Globe and Mail list, you know. And then by July, it was number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That happens every single time I write a book. But it happened. I mean, yeah. it's pretty amazing when you get right down to it to have that. Um, oh, that it's success, astonishing. Recognition. Yeah. yeah. Although I, I can imagine all kinds of writers um, being outraged by my suggesting this. So maybe I'm wrong. But it does seem to me that when I started writing in 78 and the early 80s, um, there was a, a, more opportunities for new writers. Um, especially now during COVID, of course, but even like 30 years later, uh, that great burst of um, arts organizations and writers guilds and uh, new little regional, so-called regional presses springing up. And it just seemed like the world was full of eagerness to read our own writers for the first time. For the first time. It was, it was a transitional period, wasn't it? Um, yeah mm -hmm. and the uh and also i mean there were fewer fewer writers in the pot so to speak um mm -hmm. yep. you know that the membership in the league of poets was was only you know a dozen two dozen people at the time yeah. so yeah you didn't have to sharpen your elbows quite so much to get yeah <laughs> to get right. noticed yeah it's so sad that somehow or other we have come to think as all beginning writers that or 99% of beginning writers that the aim is to get published and yeah. that anything that you write must be publishable when you would be so much better to be building your expertise, your technique, your craft and reading, reading, reading to understand what literature is and not worrying about getting published, getting an agent, you know, all of that too early. And then of course the media, uh, I mean, thank God for them. I don't want to complain too much, but they do, I think, put way too much emphasis on emerging writers, you know, like make the emerging writer feel that what he or she is doing is pretty darn fantastic when it would be better to think you weren't good enough yet. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, it would be a lot. It's not a pressure I ever actually faced myself, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> <To be> man. <laughs> I, I just, it seems to me I spent years uh, feeling unsatisfied and, you know, the yearning and that's a killer. On the other hand, it, it, it gets you working to learn. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You, because you do talk in the book. Uh, a fair bit about that sort of desire for achievement that um, sometimes even the conviction that of course you're going to be recognized. Yeah, we, right. On the one hand, it's a bit of a curse uh, because it does kind of set up 
expectations that may not emerge and it does um, distract you from the craft. On the other hand, maybe you wouldn't even bother with the craft if you didn't have that inner drive. So I'm thinking now of what, uh, is life any different for a young writer now really um, or, or should it be different than in fact it ever has been in the past? Well, I was never a young writer, you know, I was a young <laughs> painter, but uh, at 38, I had the advantage over so many of the people who were in the very few workshops I did take. And I was in this remote area of the country. You know, mm. we were really isolated and there were very few of us. Um, I had the advantage of uh, a, a university education in literature uh, and art and um, of um, having been a reader from the moment I learned to read in school. Uh, and having the guidance of a mother who was firm that we only read good stuff, you know, we weren't allowed mm -hmm. to read just anything. I mean, she was forcing Dickens on us when I was like 11 or 12, because she was so <laughs> mad about Dickens. Um, yeah. And so I had all those things that were, like I was, um, because of my age and experience and education, I was usually miles ahead of the people I might wind up in a workshop with, mm. which isn't to say that I was more talented or uh, definitely not to say that or more ambitious or anything, but just that um, I'd been around longer, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a certain, I don't want to call it maturity because that sounds like we're patting ourselves on the back, but uh... There's a certain kind of awareness of the curve of your life that starts to build when you're in your 40s. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And is perhaps even you know, more recognized now as we get closer to the uh, end. The end. end. The end. <laughs> and death, Mr. Death does turn up occasionally. <laughs> yeah, he sure does, doesn't he? <laughs> and I often refer to people my age as the nearly dead. <laughs> Where do you find, uh, because, because it's also about this energy to continue that you have, this, this efflorescence in your, your, um, in your 70s, you've brought out three books, uh, you know, you're, you're working on more. So, so where does that come from? I can't stop. I mean, I often <laughs> think I should, if I had any brains, I would, but I just uh, these all these ideas and I continue to want to craft them and shape them into something and you know I think that my agent is probably figuring if she could get a hitman to take me <laughs> out so I quit sending her books you know Damned. Uh, she has two more completed novels you know uh, one was uh, would have been out with Coteau books last fall but uh they went bankrupt, yeah, so the completed yeah. manuscript is just sitting there in her office. And the second one I've been writing, I even re did some rewrites this morning um, since the beginning of COVID. It's what, it was my sanity project. If I, if I hadn't seen this scene in my mind and started trying to make it the basis of another novel, I would probably be totally nuts by now, you know, because my husband's dead. I live alone. My son and his family are in the East and my remaining two sisters are in 
poor health and on the west coast so here i sit you know what am i gonna do i gotta have something that matters to me Uh and you know keeping the place super clean does not matter to me there's gotta be something (laughs) better than that (laughs) anyway so there there's two novels that she has and uh, she's uh among other things, of course, waiting to see how the essays go, you know, the reception of the essays so that she'll have better guidance on whether she should even try to get these books placed somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's go back to then that question of shaping the essays, because I, I was interested in, in, in the particular essay that you were reading from, the Cold Ankles one. Um, it's got so many strands layered mm, into yes. it. Uh, the, the, the gas fireplace and then the, the burning of the journals and the, um, uh, the old friend and, and the relationships. Like, how do, you, how do you go about creating that kind of essay? Well, when I write essays, um, I, I kind of, I start out, I have an idea. And I don't know where it's going, but when I test it mentally or wherever it is we writers go, which you would know all about, uh, I keep getting, I get resonance. It doesn't go dead on me. So I think, well, it's worth throwing some ideas down. So I start writing and more ideas come and I let them come. I just let them come. And some of that material um, vanishes forever and some stays and never changes right mm-hmm. to day of publication but the shaping of it um is partly natural in the way that my mind works and it's partly you know if i say contrived that means it's a trick but i i, I mean in the creative sense it you know like okay we've talked enough about that I'm going to lose my reader. I need to go to the next place and and then back again. Don't forget this. Don't drop any threads. Bring them back and, you know, that kind of thing. So I weave them in and out like that. But I think of all the essays, I prefer, actually, I know that's very stylish right now, but I actually prefer the big long one that's somewhere in the second half of the book about, it's called Vanished Without a Trace. Oh, yes. And that's the kind of essay I prefer to write to the cold ankles ones because it's a little too trendy. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes fashion is, uh, is, is not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> I happen to like braided essays. That uh, myself, so. yeah. Well, <laughs> I like that, them when other, other people write them, but it's not the way I like to work. To work yourself. No, but this one is, is really quite interesting because there's that, um, there's almost that hovering image of, of threats, the the gas leak that turns up, and and the the decision to burn part of your past. To uh, yeah, it's 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 and maybe held dreams. together, and the dreams. Yeah. It's held together by by that sort of uh, a kind of shadowy sense of threat, really. And the approach um, of death. Yes. You know, like the boom. If I don't do something about the gas, plus. <laughs> Uh, the fact yeah. that he dies, you know, yeah. I'm yeah. still kicking around. That's another thing I didn't say before. Uh, I'm sure that part of the reason that I am uh, still writing and just as enjoying the work itself, just the work, I, I just, uh, 
like to do it so much is because I'm in good health. And at 81, most people, most, I would say, people are have more physical difficulties than I have. I have the eyes, hearing stuff, you know, and arthritis in both hands and, you know, the usual stuff. But And I get tired. But I'm not dealing with a chronic illness, the, the illness of uh, the age-related age illnesses that are so awful. Uh -huh. so. I just noticed that there's something has popped up in the in the chat and someone is asking Sharon, what does Sharon mean by too trendy? So can we go back and pick that up, Sharon? <laughs> Yeah, I'm probably not going to be able to give a very satisfactory answer. But you know, the Vanished Without a Trace essay, which is very, I, I think, logical and chronological and carefully uh, written to be followed without having to remember somebody's name or anything like that. Uh, and the, and the, the, what it's about builds um, passage by passage mm -hmm. toward where I'm going. That's the kind of essay that I like to write best. Um, but I noticed in reading in literary magazines over the last few years, the winning uh, personal essays tend to be the braided kind with a lot yeah. of dialogue and a lot of scenes as if the person who wrote the essay was writing fiction. You know, the same techniques are used. And that is a kind of style. And it can be very fresh and immediate and thrilling to read, or at least compulse, uh, com compelling to read. But uh, I think that my approach, I used to be able to do that. I used to like to do it. I thought it's like that Michael Ondaatje poem, there, uh, there's a trick with a knife that I'm learning yeah, to do. Yeah, that I'm learning to do. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I, I'm more interested in ideas than I am in directly in discussing ideas than I am in writing the riveting scene, although, uh, you know, all these things that I say are only true 50% of the time. Yeah. Yes, there are a few riveting scenes in your, in your collection, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> and, and in fact, in the, in the essay, The Vanishing, um, Vanished without a trace. Uh, vanished without a trace, which picks up a, um, a, situ uh, a subject that you have dealt with previously in two books, doesn't it? Or am I thinking of the... No, I'm getting mixed up, I'm sorry. I was thinking of the, the one that um, uh, is, is, is a revisiting of the murder of Alex. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. And... Um, yeah, I did want to ask you about how uh, there are there are subjects in all our lives that we keep returning to, mm -hmm. and this this essay is yet another angle, another another way of thinking about that incident, that uh, horrific murder. Um, mm, yeah. Uh, only this time, uh, instead of talking about the murder itself directly as, as the subject of the essay, I'm talking about uh, my own um, dealings with it and my reactions to the various things that happened and mm -hmm. the way in which I grew or didn't grow as a consequence of the sometimes quite frightening things that happened to me when I was trying to 
I would always refuse the word investigate, but when I was trying to um, explore, explore what really happened and why I couldn't get an answer. And, you know, in the actual book, The Girl in Saskatoon, I did um, talk a lot about uh, women, young women in the 50s, uh, and she was murdered in 62, um, how we grew up and how we were educated and, and how we were taught to be women and what was considered to be proper behavior and so on for us. Uh, and I didn't actually specifically say, um, it, it was, well, we know in 61, all of a sudden the world got turned on its head and feminism appeared and all the rest of it. So in this essay, I actually point out the ways in which if women had been involved in the investigation, the um, coroner's inquiry and various other things, things might've gone very differently. If, it ha if the murder had happened today, it would hopefully be a much different uh, experience or a different uh, result. Yeah, they, yes, very, very definitely so. I mean, and that, at that time, there wasn't even a woman on the police force. Yeah. 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 There were women in secretarial positions, but they weren't officers. officers. I mean, yeah. police officers, they were just secretaries, you know. So, yeah. well, and so uh, I'm sorry, the, the, um, the vanishing essay. <laughs> so I, I read the, the book and I'm, 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 I'm all buzzy about it, but which one was that? <laughs> Vanished Without a Trace was the one that followed my desire to be a writer. Yes, 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 which is in a way the heart of the book, isn't it? Yeah, and I, and I decided to go kind of no holds barred because there was no point in writing the damn thing if I was just going to say all the polite things. And, <laughs> you know, so I just decided, no, what the hell, I'm 81. Who cares? You know, it, it's maybe your agent. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, you know, there's so much that we're taught or that we believe in our society about what's what we can say out loud and what we can't, or else our we egos are so fragile we'll never admit to a wrong idea or a misgiving mm -hmm. or a lie. And uh, when I think about all the people who were so horrified about the perfection of the morning, I got reams and reams of letters, really as well as um, emails and phone calls and all the rest of it. An awful lot of these came from people who were trying to protect me from myself because they were so shocked by what was in the book. You can't say things like that. They would say to me, uh, you were making yourself vulnerable. And vulnerable to what? I, I would think vulnerable to people like you who think that you can phone me and say, I can't say things like that, you know? I became indignant eventually. At first I was kind of surprised and then I began to think, but that's what's wrong with the world, that people will not tell the truth. They mm -hmm. prefer a polite lie to a painful truth. And when I think of all the things that I might've said and didn't, I just can't believe that anybody would be even remotely <laughs> shocked by what's in that book. <laughs> Well, yes. All right. Well, that, 
I won't ask you what they were. But I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I really don't know. Uh, but yes, it's a, it's an interesting uh, relationship of the, the writer's obligation to your your obligation as a human being um, as well. Yeah. Like this is not just an, an issue for writers. It's what should we say as as people, citizens, um, humans. And I always think if you're not going to make the effort to find your way into the deepest place inside yourself, um, then you would become a genre writer or why write at all? I think writing is more precious and valuable than um, lies and half-truths uh, presented as the real truth. But there's one other thing else, if I, if I might, to just speak yes, since we're touching on it um you know the first thing you, you that you know that you learn and all the writers out there know that that you learn in a writing workshop is uh get rid of the censor and you have to as a writer right away stop thinking oh i can't say that it would make mm -hmm. my mom mad or the church the school the people in my family people i work with that you've got to you know, of course you're going to draw boundaries and for each person it's different, but you cannot stop saying the things you want to say because somebody might get upset. So that's the first step. And for many years, that's what I worked with. But over the last few years, when I wrote Season of Fury and Wonder, and even when I wrote some of these essays, I wouldn't say it applied to all of them, um, especially with Season of Fury and Wonder, something opened up, a channel opened up inside me that was very direct. No more squeezing stuff out from some deep place inside me where the words just whoomp, they just came out onto the page. And that's ideally where I would like to write forever. But it takes years of work to set yourself up for that to even happen, you mm -hmm. know, and you can't will it. You know, we have a question uh, oh, okay. from Julie and it sort of ties into this. And she says, I love how you still, you talk about still having so much to learn about writing. Is there anything new you learned about writing craft as a result of working on this book? Would, would that channel be part of what you, developed during this book or it was or during season anything else? yeah oh, right well, certainly. that's a I, it you see part of it is like it's the same thing like i don't have writer's block except specifically with regard to a sentence or something like that because over the years i have trained myself without intending to that the minute i pull my chair up to my desk and my computer's ready to go and i start working I don't have to go through all the metaphorical pencil sharpening and uh, um, I'm in the place where the writing is and the writing and myself are inseparable in that time and place, in that place when I'm there with an idea. Um, when I said that earlier though about I'm learning so much 
it's more now, I think, the case of taking all the things I've learned and trying to, like I have an idea for a novel right now, or it might be a memoir, I'm not sure. And I'm thinking of all the things that would go into it. And I'm thinking of all the ways I might put them together. And so I'm thinking of all I've read and all I've written and places where I learned this and I learned that and what would work here. And then maybe something new will come up. It's not something that I can be really specific about, uh, you know, like mm. make a set of rules. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, the rules are, there's no how-to manual really, is there? There really is. Yeah, isn't. that's right, yeah. I'm just watching, we have another question. Um, okay. Uh, I love how you write fresh and illuminating works. You never seem to run out of ideas. Okay. Just wanted to know what was the most difficult scene you ever wrote, fiction or nonfiction? Oh, I'm writing it right now. Oh. Um, I have been writing it for a couple of weeks. Uh, I have never written a scene in which a character died from inside the character who was dying. And that's what I've been trying to do. Okay. And it's easy. I, like I started out in the first draft, I just said, uh, sort of, and then he died, period. <laughs> but um, I thought, oh, hey, I can do better than that. <laughs> so I tried to expand and start writing about um, all the things that we hear uh, just around non-religious, well, some of it is religious based, but uh, about what happens when you die, the white light, mm -hmm. especially the 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 tunnel, etc. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a whole thing, and I must have rewritten it at least ten times to get it just right. And then when I was done, I kind of walked away, and I thought, "Yeah, do I really believe that?" And I thought, <laughs> "Who knows?" But I actually, you know, that's that's just that's a cliche, and I kind of doubt it. So then I thought. Okay, let's stick with something I know more about from dreams and these little brief flashes of vision that I sometimes have. So I then wrote a very short version that was darker and not so filled with um, glory and uh, light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah, perfection and all the rest of it. And I, I liked it, but I, it didn't feel right for my character. It didn't say enough for the novel. So then I was talking, it might even be the person who asked this question. I was, if it is, I, I was talking over the phone with him and I, well, no, I guess I had the idea before, so scratch that. Um, I suddenly thought, why does death have to be this big production since it's happened? a bazillion times and every single one of us will go through it. And I thought, I bet it's not all that stuff. I bet that's all crap. <laughs> I bet you're here one minute and gone the next, wherever you go. So I wrote it again. <laughs> and that's what I was doing this morning. I was trying to smarten it up a bit and you know, always worrying about fulfilling the demands of the novel itself yes. within, within this and the character's trajectory and all of that. 
So I thought better stop because I have no idea if this is it or not. Better leave it alone, come back in a few days. And so that's the hardest, but the hardest <laughs> is best. Even harder, yes. <laughs> much more mechanically difficult is trying to get an action scene right so that when the reader reads it, it's perfectly clear and they don't have to sit there saying, well, wait a minute he did what or like who did what first you know when you go over it and over it and over it but clarity is in my view one of the first demands of the writer mm -hmm. I mean of the read of the reader from the writer oh, you're right yeah yeah and that's that but you know we could have a whole discussion about clarity but yeah. I'm all of a sudden noticing the time and I oh think we're gosh. kind of closing in on uh on the end. I just wondered if um, I wanted to ask you quickly about plans for events uh, mm. coming up and um, more just about the launch of this particular book. Uh, we're launching it live September 8th. That's, that's a week from today at 7 p.m. at Owl's Nest Books in Calgary. Um, we are, of course, all of us weighing the COVID situation and uh, I would say at this point, we have decided to go ahead. That includes the bookstore, the publisher, and me, the writer. Um, however, I think it's worth saying, if you're smart, you'll wear a mask. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, obviously, nobody's going to demand that, but it doesn't hurt to say it. And should our situation provincially or in the city of Calgary get worse, I could imagine that we might go, we might I don't know what exactly. It certainly go Zoom, but uh, maybe not on September 8th. I don't know. Yeah, it's been such a different year, a year and a half for launching books, hasn't it? Oh, it's been so um, difficult for yeah. everyone. Sure yeah. has. I pity the young writers getting their first book out in the midst of this. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, unless they can make TikTok videos out of it. But, but this is beyond <laughs> me. <laughs> Yes, right. Same here. <laughs> Sharon, it's really been a delight to talk to you. And um, I, I have been totally absorbed in the book because I, I resonate very much as a writer myself getting, you know, older and mm, thinking, yeah. um, what do we become? How do we become it? What do we continue doing? That kind of thing. And your yeah. book addresses those questions in so many different ways actually and in quite a few mood, moods and mm -hmm. some of them rather ornery <laughs> um, <laughs> you noticed it <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, not hard to find so anyway i i do uh hope that many many people read and enjoy it um, thank you so much alice if i don't get a chance i want to say it now you've been terrific i really appreciate it thank you and I just need to say, too, and a wind-up thank you to um, Reed Alberta for sponsoring this yes. series, uh, to the Writers Guild of Alberta, and specifically to Jason and Norman and the rest of the staff there Absolutely. for keeping things rolling. Um, of course, to you for your time here. And I, I want to suggest to everyone that you can come back next Wednesday and uh, for another visit with another new book that's going to be coming out yes. so um i guess at that point we'll just sort of say farewell 
Ovoir. Thanks so much to everyone who was uh, all, I don't know how many people, but <laughs> thank we you. We don't see it here, but thank yeah. you.